0: Hey Max, I'm um.
1: I think I need to be co-host. Sorry.
2: Oh, oh, it switched when I made onkit. Okay, yeah. one sec. uh No, you should be host.
1: Okay.
0: There we go. Ex-
2: excellent. Okay. <laughs> um, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I just kind of randomly added you on Twitter and asked if you'd give this talk after we kind of chatted about what um, what constituted a good presentation, but I'm I'm excited to find out. I've given plenty of bad mathematical presentations in my life. So maybe uh, after this, I could give a couple good ones. Um, so
1: thank you so much for joining us. And we're excited about this talk. Thanks so much, Max. Yes, it's a kind of a strange way of meeting, I guess we met on Twitter. Um, It's not the first time that's happened actually in my academic career, but this is actually the first time I've ever given a talk about talks per se. Um, I've spoken in some grad seminars given some discussion and in courses and things when students had to make presentations given advice to my own students and so on. But this is the first time I've sort of organized it in a coherent fashion this way. And um, normally, Max, how long is this like, is it an academic hour, half an hour?
2: normally we do 20 to 30 minutes presentation and then we just chat after that for another
1: 20 to 30 minutes. I'm Uh, good. We're pretty flexible if um, you have something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm good with that. And, uh, you know, feel free anyone to chime in during this. It's, you know, very informal and, you know, there's not really math content per se, but there's lots of talking points and and we could probably have a good discussion after. So thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. So how do you give a good math presentation? That is the goal today. I've seen a lot of talks in my time, um, some good, some not so good. I've given talks, many talks in my time, some good, not so good. And um, in my, I guess, third decade of my academic career, I've, I've pulled together these ideas. Um, I just wanna start off like I do always in my talks with a land acknowledgement. As I was discussing earlier, I'm coming from Toronto where we're um, subject to various treaties uh, with the Haudenosaunee, Mississauga, Anishinaabeg peoples. So I just want to acknowledge that at the beginning of the talk. And I guess all of this started with this tweet, right? So this was sent out last December, um, about two months ago. And I, you know, just was at a conference. I was at the Canadian Mass Society Conference in Toronto, one of the first larger in-person meetings I was at. And I saw some talks, and I guess I was bored in between, and I, I wrote a tweet. It didn't quite go viral, but I guess like 300 likes is like a lot for math Twitter. I don't know. And I just said, you know, slow down and maybe give examples instead of better lines and formulas. And Max saw this, liked it and invited me to give this talk. So, um, you know, um, these are very basic ideas. I'll be discussing these and more as we go through. Uh, But these are sort of core things that you want to think about when you're giving a presentation. you know, especially with mathematics where you have so many complex ideas and, you know, you want to measure yourself, go at a good pace and, you know, maybe just throwing up big, you know, huge equations, partial differential equations of the audience isn't always the best strategy. I followed this up with a tweet um, a couple of weeks ago, like talking about, you know, making a joke about sort of job talks, right? I mean, there's this formula. I don't know. I think it comes from relativity. I don't even know myself. Just making the point in a kind of over-the-top way that, you know, In presentations, you know, you have to be a bit careful the way you present yourself and your mathematics. And by the way, I know that I'm speaking to the Boston Computing Group, so what I say is about mathematics, but theoretical computer science, data science, all of that sort of is applicable and merges into this. So some basic questions. I think it's very important always in any kind of scholarly pursuit to ask why, and why do we give talks at all? I mean, this is one of the most basic questions. Of course, communication. Are like what we're doing now: expression of ideas uh, back and forth, dissemination. You have your latest and greatest result, some new idea you want to start spreading that, and talks are one way to you know disseminate. You put things on archive, on websites, submit to journals and proceedings, but talks could be the way you learn about that na- next big idea that you're going to use in your thesis or your you know your collaboration or your discussions. And collaboration is a a critical part of giving talks. You can meet co-authors, you know, uh, it's a great way to interact with people, talking like we would in person afterwards or what we're going to do after this, just discussing ideas. And also recognition. If you have some, you know, new idea and you want to get out there, talks are a way to communicate all that. So there are many different facets to giving, giving math talks, many different reasons why we do it. And just some principles, I guess. Um, I tried to net this down. I came down to six. So I don't know. Six is the magic number here. And um, really, I think this list could be different. It could be longer. It could be shorter. Um, You may want to list different things or emphasize them in a different order. But these are the ones that the thinking about it I came up with. So be understandable is number one. Know your audience. Less is more. Talks are not papers. And organization is key, and last but not least, preparation. Now I'm going to discuss all of these, and I'll give you an example of one of my talks at some point during the discussion. So just a bit of background about myself, not to flex. I just want to give you some sort of, you know, I don't know, background that, you know, I actually have some credence, and I've, I've done this many, many years. I'm a full professor of mathematics. I've given probably hundreds of talks. I've seen maybe more than that, Uh, and lots of different kinds of talks. I've given keynotes, public lectures, uh, colloquial seminar, uh, readings from various writings I've done. I've been on panels. I've done many, many job talks. Um, I've written many papers and books, and I have a number of graduate students and postdocs, so I've interacted with them a lot. Um, especially when they're going on the job market, they're always asking about, you know, ways to optimize their talks and so on. So I've given lots of advice over the years. Okay, so the first principle that I want to emphasize to you is about being understandable. And this goes back, I remember talking to one of my undergraduate professors asking him advice um, when presenting mathematics. And this is the first thing he said. It's so basic, but it's... Absolutely critical and it's universal. Be understandable. Um, you know, think about presenting very complex ideas, your latest theorem or algorithm. Uh, you need to plan that out. You need to think about what you are communicating. What I always like to do with my talks uh, is to give a story. Okay, so stories are not just for fairy tales, they're also for mathematicians and scientists. Um, If you don't like the context of a story, you can frame it around an example, but this is an easy way to engage the audience to grab them and pull them in, as opposed to putting like lines and lines of formulas, start with something simple and relatable, an example or a story. Um, Very important in mathematics is to put your ideas in context. So we're familiar with the idea of literature reviews. You want to essentially do that within a talk. Now, you're not gonna be, I wouldn't recommend listing all the papers that have appeared throughout history, you know, in a given topic, but you wanna sort of give the idea some background to the listener so they know whatever results you're presenting, you know, the context for them, right? So, you know, you proved a theorem, maybe someone did something similar last year and you're extending that, or you're solving a conjecture, or you're presenting an example. But if you just jump right in and present these things without context, it's kind of meaningless, right? So give context to your ideas. I always suggest highlighting takeaways. And when you're thinking about a talk, you may want to think about at a high level, what are the main things that you want to present? right? What are the takeaways? Like I've already done, I I mentioned these six principles, right? So those are my, my main takeaways, those six principles. But whatever that is for you, you want to highlight them and you want to repeat them. This is the thing that I think a lot of people don't do is they, you know, maybe say something once and then go on to the next thing and the next, next. It's always a good idea, just human nature, especially like what we're doing now, you listening to me presenting ideas to repeat them, to go over and over. It's the way we understand things. I mean, you don't want to repeat them, you know, like too much, but a couple times is fine, and it's always good to go back. Like if you have, you know, some result that you're stating, maybe go back to the slide with the definition and go over it again before you state it or, or whatever it is, just to let people know and you know jog people's memories of what you're talking about. And I like this phrase. It's something I learned in a teaching seminar when I was a graduate student a million years ago. Speak extemporaneously. So if you're not familiar with this concept. Um, Basically, the idea is you want to speak with a script in mind, but you're speaking in a natural, organic way. So the two extremes of speaking would be fully scripted, where you're reading every word, every line, or you're just, you know, completely organic ad-lib, you know, no script at all. Extemporaneous is somewhere in the middle, and this is a good thing to think about. So be familiar with your presenting so that it flows. And extemporaneous discussion, I mean, I'm used to doing it. I've done it for so long. It takes time to get used to that. Uh, But definitely, you can remember back. Each of you can think about talks that you've heard where the speaker's too rigid. And it's just, it's boring. And you can feel the tension because it's just the person's reading lines off off a screen. And you've probably also been to talks where it was just free-for-all. And just the speaker was just... You know, rambling in a sense, and that that wasn't too good either. I mean, it probably didn't help with the communication. So again, extemporaneous is somewhere in the middle. Know who you're talking to, right? So who's in the audience? What kind of talk is it? There's so many different kinds of talks in the academy. Uh, it could be a short talk, 15 minutes. It could be a long talk, 50 minutes. Uh, it could be a seminar. Um, I remember I gave a seminar and. Uh, I thought I did well, and I was speaking to a colleague afterwards, he said, well, you know, we really want to know more of the details, right? I I gave a talk that was too high level. I had a lot of pictures and discussion, and in the seminar, they really wanted the nitty-gritty details, the proofs and so on. So think about that. What is the audience? What is the context? If you're giving a public lecture, for example, it's very, very different. I don't know if any of you have done this or you've attended these, but you have a very, very general audience. People may not even be academics, right? Um, and you have to try and engage them and, and speak to all of them. That is another critical piece, I think, when you're when you're talking is you wanna speak, to, try to speak to everybody. I mean, you won't be able to do that throughout a talk. Uh, maybe it's a very technical thing and maybe five people in the front row will understand what you're saying, but can you put something in, like I said, an example or story at the beginning that will grab people right at the get-go? So think about that, you know, it's very important. Like the why, right? What are we doing? We're communicating, we're disseminating. Um, Who are you speaking to? That's a a
0: basic one to think about.
1: Less is more. Something I heard when I was a graduate student is nine lines maximum on slides. And I tried to keep keep to that throughout my career. I think I have nine lines here now um, or less. Uh, it's a good idea. It's a good benchmark. I mean, if you go 10, it doesn't matter. But the idea is not to put too much on any one slide. Uh, we've all been to talks where they're just crammed with things. I remember going to a talk where it was essentially almost like a, a copy of the paper with, in 12-point with all of these lines and definitions and it because it was hard to follow. And if you're writing in person, if you're on a blackboard or a whiteboard, you should never stoop. So always keep yourself comfortable, never reach too high, never reach too low, always within that zone in the space that you have. Slow down. This is something that, again, so basic, but very, very important in in talks. I've heard the phrase in people giving talks, well, I don't have much time, so I'm gonna really go fast. It should be the opposite. I don't have much time, so I'm gonna skip over these ideas. A good idea when you're presenting a topic is always to have more slides than you need. And have a few slides essentially as backup, things you can um, talk about in discussion, but be ready to skip over things. Uh, There could be questions, it could be a discussion in the middle of a talk, and it could derail your timing. Okay, it depends on the kind of talk. Typically, like, you know, in a, you know, say a job talk, people respect your time if you have 20 minutes. But again, there could be questions, so always prepare for that. Simplify. Um, minimize the amount of jargon you're using. Even punctuation can be distracting sometimes. And all of this comes down to TED Talks. So I'm pleased to hear you have this 20-minute rule, this half an hour rule, because that's similar to what TED does, right? And these TED Talks, uh, basically, you you have 18 minutes and the idea is that's how long people's attention span is. So that's the, the thing you're thinking about, that maybe I have you for 18 minutes and then after that, I lose you. So think about that. Talks are not papers. Okay, again, these are very different things. So papers, academic papers, proceedings, journals, theses, these tend to be very technical, right? Um, Talks can be technical, but they often are really less so. They're more about communication. And the analogy I use is the difference between a, a film and a novel. Right? In a novel, you can really get inside of a character's head. You can elaborate. There's lots of discussion. Um, you know, There's lots of dialogue. But in a film, maybe 90 minutes, maybe two hours, uh, you don't have that amount of time. So you really have to get right to the point and engage people right from the get-go. And think about how you read papers. Uh, we all do it, right? Uh, as scholars, um, you can stop, put it aside um highlight something take out your pen your highlighter you can doodle like maybe there's some calculation you want to do on the side you can essentially stop and you can pause it you can't really pause me I guess you can if you're watching the recording right but I have you as a captive audience uh, and there are no pauses really and it's also a social setting and that can cause people anxiety sometimes right maybe people don't want to ask questions in a social setting right well in a, a, a paper that's not really a point so much so break the rules. That's one thing I'm going to suggest to you all when giving talks. Think about ways that you can engage the audience. Tell a story, give an example, do something a little bit outside the box. And like I said in my, my tweet, careful with long lines of formulas. I mean, I'm guilty of it myself. Sometimes you have to do that. There's a lengthy calculation, but think about ways you can simplify it.
0: So feel free anytime if anyone have questions or discussions,
1: I'll just keep going, but yeah, please let me know. Organization. Very, very important. Any kind of endeavor, specifically when giving talks. Most people giving talks, I would say, don't think of storyboards like you would in a film, but think of it that way. You want to maybe write down a template, say, with the main things you want to say. I always do that. Maybe I'll start off you know, in Microsoft Word or in LaTeX, and I'll write out, like, you know, an itemized list. Here are the 10 things I want to hit on, right? What goes where, right? Where do I put things? Um, What are you including? What you're excluding is also really critical. That's hidden, but that's very, very important. Like you would with an essay, you have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Those are the clearly defined parts of every talk, and you want to respect that. One thing that I think is very common, I've seen a lot actually computer scientists do, but mathematicians do this too, is they give these sort of table of contents outlines at the beginning of talks. Um, I don't like doing it. Experiment not, with not doing it. It kind of, To me, it kind of gives away the plot, right? I mean, you don't necessarily have to do that. You can just launch into something like an example or your story and that'll drag people in. And p- Keeping people engaged is very, very important. I remember um, hearing a quote from the novelist uh, Margaret Atwood, and she was saying, the number one thing to do as an author is to keep your reader engaged. And that's the same as a speaker. You want to make sure to engage people. The last of my principles I want to mention is preparation. And you know it's like real estate, location, 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 prepare, prepare, prepare. Um, Think about what you're going to say. What I do for my technical talks is I write cheat sheets. I have a bunch of things, maybe historical settings, some technical parts that are not included in the talk, but that I can speak to at any time. All right. So it depends on how comfortable you are with your topic. Maybe you've been studying some topic for your thesis for four years. You're intimately familiar with it. You don't need those cheat sheets, but maybe it's something that you know is new to you and you need that. So have that handy, go through it before the talk, like you would almost like a test. Uh, edit. I've seen many talks with spelling mistakes, grammatical mistakes, and it's a thing with scholarly work. I mean, you're gonna deal with people uh, with lots of different cultural backgrounds, with lots of different accents. I know it's difficult, especially the pronunciations. I'm guilty myself. I probably didn't say Irish the right way for the first couple of years of my, my PhD, right? But, you know, um, you just have to sort of figure that out. And you can go online, you can learn about pronunciations and stuff on YouTube. You can ask a colleague, um, but just try and get those things. Those are distractions, right? If you see spelling mistakes or you see errors in talks, it just distracts you. If you have a time limit, you can practice with a timer. I I typically don't anymore. I used to do this quite carefully, but um, you know, Take out your phone, set up a timer, and just go through that. You can practice with your friends, your colleagues. Practice to a wall. Like I said, cheat sheets. These are a good way, you know, to sort of summarize ideas. Um, just prepare, prepare, prepare. That's my suggestion. So I wanted to. How are we doing with time? It's about twenty minutes after, right? Um, I wanted to take a, a minute or two and show you one of my actual talks. Um, just to give you a sense of how I do things. Um, So just bear with me, I'm gonna change my sharing. So this is the presentation. This was, I think, from last year's JMM. As you notice, I'm using PowerPoint. Many people use Beamer. I've also been using Notability a lot on my iPad. Um, I like actually writing things out. It's actually kind of informal. It feels almost like a blackboard. I've been doing that a lot during the pandemic. Just anecdotally, Anthony, anecdotally, all of the math
2: professors we've had talk to us except for you have been on their iPads with Notability. So it seems like that is now the dominant. (laughs) I mean, it's been like five or six now.
1: Yeah, I think it it definitely has become dominant. And what I'll say is I could show you my Notability talk, which I gave last week or two, but uh, I have to connect with my iPad and I'm just, I'm worried something technical will go wrong for sure if I have a separate device connecting. So I'm just showing you this. It's another PowerPoint presentation from a year ago. Um, And the idea behind this, so it's my land acknowledgement, the idea behind this, I start with an actual example, right? To illustrate this idea and I have these players and they're moving by various rules and I explain it with some simple animations. I talk about different examples, right? So I'm not actually giving the talk, I'm just sort of describing a high level. And um, I pose a question after going through these examples, I pose a question looking at these little more complicated graphs of what this, this game would look like on those. And that's a question that I'm going to answer later. So I define this game, and I talk about various things. And here I give the lit review. So where am I? I'm on page 12, on slide 12. And I'm just starting my lit review, right after all those examples. And I do that for several slides. I spend a lot of time talking about what others have done, building up to this research. And I get to a conjecture, right, that was stated in this paper in 2018. And I describe with the author our solution of that conjecture. And notice again, I'm on slide 17 having done that. So it's already, you know, maybe like 10 minutes or more into the talk that I'm really getting to my own work. Okay, so this is just an idea to give you a sense of how I present and sort of within the context of my principles. Okay, so let me go back to my slides. I have a few more things I wanna tell you. So uh, another important piece, uh, especially these days, but it should always be is thinking about EDI, sometimes called DEI, equity, diversity, and inclusion. The phrase I love is that you know diversity is a fact, inclusion is a choice. And we make a lot of choices when we're giving talks, for example, about accessibility. One thing that I learned a couple years back, right before the pandemic, I remember giving a talk and someone told me to use the microphone. This is very important for people who are hard of hearing, right? So um, things like that, you know, uh, there's, you know, uh, options you can use to make your talk more accessible. Please do that. Humor uh, is a tough one. I like using humor myself. I do it on my Twitter feed all the time, as you can tell. Um, But it's, you know, if you'd be careful with humor, because people, especially non native speakers, may take things like irony can be really lost in translations. You have to be really careful with that. Um, something we do a lot in Canada, I think people, more and more people, have been doing in the US as well as with land acknowledgements. Uh, and think about who you're citing. Are you only citing, you know, white men, for example, right? I mean, are there, are there other people you can be citing? Are you, if you're talking about something that is with regards to like a minoritized group, you may want to think about a sensitivity check. You need to share your slides with someone to get second opinions. Just think about it's another layer, right approaching your talk. Think about making it more inclusive. And some general pointers, just some things. um sort of the last slide, I guess, some things you want to think about. Be careful with pictures. Right. I think pictures are really, really important and can be very, very effective, depending on the kind of talk. But if you have too many, I personally find them distracting. And again, it just depends on people's style. Some people love to fill up their slides with pictures, animations, movies, things like this. As you can see from what I did, I had a very simple white background. I had very minimal pictures. I just want to present these ideas. Right. It depends on the kind of talk you're giving. Right. Like I did with my example with a graph. I start off with a picture. So there you go. Right. That's there. Movement's fine. <laughs> Obviously, I'm sitting down in my office, uh, but if I'm physically there, I would be moving around, pointing, maybe you know, um, trying to express myself a little bit with my movement. It's a good idea, right? Always to move. Be careful though. I remember seeing a talk where one of the speakers fell off the stage. Um, he quickly got back up and started talking again. But I mean, this can't happen. So be careful where you are. And when you're talking, it's very easy to do things like, oh, you know, move your arm and then water spills on your iPad or, you know, you trip over something. Uh, But movement is good. Difficult questions. okay? so we're all going to get them. Um, It's okay to say, I don't know. That's fine to do. I mean, if someone's asking you about your core results and you say, I don't know, maybe it's not so good. But I mean, people ask questions coming from all the different kinds of backgrounds and directions. And, you know, talks aren't, aren't exams, right? I mean, I think a lot of people make this mistake, especially students. They think that they're going into a talk and it's this pressure situation. They got to get everything correct and perfect. That's not the case. You're there to communicate. And remember mathematics or whatever field you're working in is difficult, right? And, And listening to math talks is more difficult. So bear that in mind. Think of yourself as an audience member and how you're receiving this. So we're presenting complex ideas. Absorbing them is more complex. And think about also your voice, right? Like as you would as an actor, Um, I'm on Zoom right now with my uh, microphone and my camera, so it's not much of an issue. But um, if you don't have access to a microphone, practice projecting your voice, use the microphone when you can, make sure people can hear you. It's very difficult to do. I haven't done it myself, but try to reduce, I won't say remove these verbal crutches that we all have. So the uh and the um and the ahs, right? These things you'll notice some speakers tend to do it all the time. It's almost like a punctuation between ideas. One thing I suggest to my students, take a pause. So present an idea, take a breath, pause, go to the next idea, pause, go to the next idea, and so on. These are basic things you can do, probably you've heard it from others, but this really does help a lot in terms of reducing these crutches. So that's pretty much all I want to present. You can find more about me on my website. Uh, Feel free to email me. I'll post these slides on my website um, and also follow me on Twitter. So thanks everybody.
2: Thank you so much, Anthony. That was wonderful. Um, So we'll we'll move right into Q&A so people can just go ahead and and speak up with their questions. We'll do our best not to step on each other's toes, but it's a pretty small group, so I don't think it will be an issue. And maybe I'll start us out with one. I did my undergrad in math and I kind of knew how to give relatively okay math presentations to a math audience coming into grad school. Now as a computer science grad student, the audience is just fundamentally different and expects different things. And it was a big culture shock for me in particular, because most people I talk to now do not care about my proofs. They only care about my results. And I felt like as an undergrad, we would talk about like, how did I prove this thing? Right. And that was sort of sure. interesting. So I wonder, how do you decide um, when to give a proof, when to give like a proof sketch, when to just give intuition, how do you decide on that spectrum, depending on your audience, um, uh, the way you're going to present your result?
1: One thing I'll say is I'm impressed during your undergraduate that you gave a bunch of presentations because many of just
2: class, class presentations, right? Like not, I wasn't doing research
1: or anything. All good. Yeah, no, it's even in classes, like many of my graduate students that I've, I've interacted with over the years have not ever given a presentation until grad school. And that's to me, that's a bit of um, a flaw in our education. I think it's really critical. I mean, in Europe, other places, they emphasize things like oral exams and so on, right? Um, We don't do that typically as much, but I always put in my grad courses, for example, there's always a a big project with a presentation at the end. And I try and convey to students, this is a critical piece of how you're going to proceed in grad school. So to your question, right? So about how to decide what to put in, in terms of proofs and so on, It really depends. I mean, I think it depends on, like, I'll go back to what I said about the kind of talk in your audience. If you're giving a technical seminar, then you make the decision to put maybe some proofs in. It just depends on what you're doing, right? If it's like an hour talk, right, where you have your supervisor, maybe a few experts, some other graduate students who are working in that area, maybe it's time to delve into the proof. One of the provisors that I've heard over the years is always include one proof in any mathematical oriented talk. Again, that's something you take with a grain of salt. It really depends. I mean, I've I was at a conference in Sicily in uh, November, which was largely data scientists, right? People working in complex networks, and there really were no proofs at all. A lot of pictures, a lot of discussion. Um, The audience. I mean, I had a question in the audience, and it was an economist, right? So. It's, again, I, don't, I think a proof would probably not have been a good idea in the 20 minutes or so that I had. So you really have to use your judgment. I'd really ask yourself the question, who's in the audience and what you're trying to accomplish?
3: I have a comment. Um, you reminded me of one of my biggest pet peeves academically, which is that I've had quite a few professors who cannot ever say I don't know. And I've had this experience for years and years where I'll ask a question and they'll say, that's not in the scope of this class. (laughs) And it's the catch all excuse for, I don't know. And I think having seen it from a student's perspective, it's not a mistake that I would be inclined to make because you look so much worse evading a question than admitting that you don't know the answer.
1: Absolutely agree. Isn't it really why we're here? I mean, we're scholars, mm-hmm. we don't know things, we're trying to learn, right? I think sometimes people yeah. feel scared, they feel like enormous pressure. Sometimes as an instructor, I've taught a number of courses, right? I don't know if you've taught yet uh, in front of like an undergraduate audience, say, but you you always want to look like you're in control, right? And sometimes, especially if it's a large class, it can feel like it can go out of control and you don't want to be kind of, you know, butt of jokes or something, But, but, you know, your point's really well taken. I mean, saying you don't know is is fundamental. And it's, you know, again, it's the context. If it's like, you know, tell me the main result of your thesis after, you know, four or five years of work. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know it's, it's less appropriate than maybe, you know, can you speculate on how this would apply to, you know, motivic K theory and some Galois field? I, was like, I don't know.
2: Okay, we have a question in the chat. Um, So Brennan writes great talk. Your thoughts remind me of a TED talk given by Grant Sanderson. He was talking about the need for more narrative to effectively communicate mathematical technical ideas. You touched on this in your talk, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on effectively incorporating narrative that have worked or not in your experience.
1: So I'll give you an example that's top of mind. So I was at the joint mathematics meeting in Boston a couple weeks ago, right, this is a huge meeting of mathematicians about 5000 of them or so. And I was giving a talk about this new research on something called the burning number of a graph. And I started off with, uh, again, with a tweet, and this was from crypto bro, uh, Anthony Pompliano. <laughs> and I talked about this tweet and its reaction to it, but then I went to this data visualization of how this tweet uh, infiltrated and spread in the Twitterverse, right? From node to node, from account to count. So there um I and I noticed people like I was talking about a crypto bro in the first two minutes of the talk. I noticed people, especially a lot of people in the audience were, you know, millennials a eh? everybody knew what I was talking about and it kind of relaxed people. Some people were laughing. I mean, so y- you can, you know, you have to do this with care, but you can think of ways of presenting something like I said, either a story or an example that draws people in. Some people I've known also do things like they'll have interaction right from the get-go. They'll start asking the audience a question or a poll. You have to be careful with that. I mean, sometimes people feel like they're put on a spot and they'll feel comfortable with it, but again, it depends. I mean, you know, so think again, break the rules. Think of ways that you can engage people. There really are no rules with talks. Um, One talk I remember seeing, I'll never forget, it's one of my um, co-authors, Claude Tardiff. Of an eccentric guy, I guess a lot of mathematicians are a bit eccentric. So he had, it was on blackboards and he had three large blackboards and he wrote out all these results, his mathematical results. Then he erased everything uh, except the titles of the different things and put new stuff in. And then he went and erased again and then he put other stuff. So it was sort of the same thing, these three panels, but with edited, with new ideas put in each stage. I just thought, oh, this is brilliant. I mean, that just really, that really grabbed me, right? It was it was like a straightforward, normal chalk and talk um, talk, but then he broke it up into this. So
0: be creative. Think of ways to engage audience. That's interesting.
1: No, go ahead, Ankit. What do you think about uh, animations in mathematical talks? I think they're great. I think uh, I didn't do many in my talk today, but uh, we well, saw in my examples, right? um my bad sort of like PowerPoint animations but um uh, for example notability is very easy to do you can drag and drop things I think these are great again be careful uh if it's if it's something relevant and useful for the talk I think it's perfect and a picture speaks a thousand words I'm saying be careful from the context of overloading your talk with too many I think uh I remember seeing a a talk it was a couple years ago I'm trying to remember Yes, it was in Georgia and someone was talking on random graph theory, very technical and they used Prezi. I don't know if anybody uses that anymore. It's a presentation software and what it does is it you say it's like done in Beamer, so you have a theorem, technical, and but then it zooms in and you were like the audience was like flying into the theorem. <laughs> and it was it was fun once or twice, but there were 20 slides and I started to feel dizzy at the end of it, right? I'm, I'm not sure it really helped. I mean, those are probably not the kind of animations you're discussing, right? But but say you're talking about something in mathematical modeling and you have some system or some interacting parts and you present some some uh, animation, that can be fantastic. And if it's not yours, give attributions. That's another thing I'll say. Cool. There's a hand up, I think Jared.
4: Yeah, so um I wanted to dive a little more into your opinion on you said like a table of contents for example um or 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 like you know laying out where the talk is is headed and, and and this idea that this is an idea that I've come to to appreciate as well of like don't show your hand right you're you're sort of telling a story right you don't have to tell everybody up front um and uh, obviously so uh, the main, you know I know that when I was doing like a a master's thesis defense or something like that, I say at the beginning, I'm like, not the very first slide, but after introducing an example, I say, okay, here are my three main contributions and these are gonna be the things that we talk about. And then I sort of jump in. And I I feel like that's probably like, uh, um, that, that felt reasonable. One thing that's interesting to me is that I think this is particularly when people use Beamer um a lot of the templates by default they'll tell you'll be able to see on the slide what slides you're on out of the total um and or it might say um it might have all the headings for the different sections of the presentation it'll have like all of them grayed out except for the one that you're in or something like that and I'm wondering what your thoughts on like the pros and cons of those kinds of things are, because yes, it shows your hands and yes, it can be really distracting for people to be like, Oh, thank God, there's only two slides left or something like that. (laughs) Um, We've all done that. We've all counted down. (laughs) I I feel like it can also be valuable, particularly if it's a more elaborate talk or a longer one to help ground people and give them a sense of almost like temporal spatial awareness. Right, like mm-hmm. where am I among all of this information? So to yes. that's that's one thing that Prezi can do. Like Prezi, I remember when I was in like middle school, everybody was using Prezi and then it died out pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Prezi's, one valuable thing that Prezi can do is give you a sense of space because everything is laid out positionally and you jump physically between different locations. Um, the consequence is that it's dizzying uh, and it becomes just obnoxious after a little while,
1: but right. yeah. It's like a novelty. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. Yeah. so I, I agree with everything you said. And I, I think, I mean, you had a question there about, you know, page numbering and how much, you know, like headers and things like that. I don't use Beamer for that reason, because for me, it feels a little too stultified. But again, I think it really depends on the context, right? There's no one kind of talk. And if, like you said, if you have a long, elaborate thing and you want the page numbers to be able to reference things, certainly very handy to do. Notice what I did. Like I had six guiding principles, right? Something like you'd see almost in a TED Talk or something. Like here are the six things and those are itemized so we can go back and discuss them. Uh, But also I want to go back to something you said earlier. So the outline of a talk, yeah, I find that really boring. Like it's like going to a movie and the first thing you see is like, here are the things that are going to happen in the movie for the next two hours. But what you said was, after a couple slides of introduction, you had here are the three main contributions. I think that's really valuable because that's highlighting your takeaways.
0: Neha has a question. Sorry, I think you're muted. Yeah, you're, Neha, you're you're unmuted, but we can't hear you. So something's wrong with your audio. All good.
1: Well, Jared, did that sort of um, answer your question or is there any follow-up there?
4: Yeah, I uh, I, 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 think I agree with your points. I, I mainly don't use Beamer because I'm not good enough at it yet to justify. I've I I've developed such a good workflow since like middle school of using PowerPoint that I can whip up something in PowerPoint much, much, much faster than in Beamer. Um, and it'll be cleaner and better looking and, and so on and so on. Um, so, I'm planning to stick with that for the time being
1: <laughs> and i've I really enjoyed I've kind of migrated more or less to um, to notability for my technical talks. Uh, I really enjoy the ability to kind of you know move around the screen, zoom in, drag and drop it's yeah, but it's again, it's not for everybody and mm-hmm. if you're presenting something with lots of uh, pictures and animations and things like this, um, notability may not be as good as something like PowerPoint.
0: Neha is going to type out her question, so we will have it momentarily. All good.
1: Yes, yes. Um, many people don't have Microsoft Office anymore, right? They use like Google Docs, saying because it's free. And but yeah, it, it really—I know people who are absolute devotees to Beamer and LaTeX and um, probably a much smaller minority in the math community use PowerPoint. Like was mentioned earlier, I think notability or things like it, it's becoming the de facto. So Neha wrote,
2: could you, yeah, Neha, could you elaborate a bit more on tips for having a wide literature section? I like the idea of really going through the timeline and covering major results as well, but worry about it not being engaging enough.
1: Yeah, so let me go back to my talk. <laughs> Um so right. So I I introduced this localization number parameter in this talk, right? For giving examples. And then I, I tell you some of the background and where the origins were. This parameter, this localization came out around 2014 or so, maybe origins 2012. Um, but I give you background going almost 50 years. And you'll notice in
0: my points.
1: Sorry, I think I lost everybody there for a second. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, you're back now. You said you'll notice in my points, and then you disappeared. Uh, let me see. I'll try it again, the risk of it dropping, but I'll make the point here. Yeah, I just have bullets. I don't go into a lot of detail. I just give the reference. I you know don't mention the name of the paper. You can do that if it's a critical paper or something you're referencing, but I'm just doing a high-level overview. And I do that for a few slides. I don't think it's probably... Sp- smart in most talks to go very, very long in a lit review. Lit reviews can be a bit boring. Uh, They're there mainly to convince the audience that you're a scholar and that you know the context. It's also, like I mentioned, important to put your own results in context. So lit reviews are important, don't omit them, but you don't want to probably go overboard with them. Um, You know, again, so here I'm talking about those results, um, Janssen and Koch, and I give an example of a graph again to illustrate. Graph theory is very visual, and it's very useful in that manner, right? To present pictures. So does that uh, does that answer your question? in
2: In the context of in the context of security, I often like to give, which is what I research. I like to give a timeline of ways people have attacked something, because mm-hmm. it gives you some intuition into like the adversarial thinking of how people are coming up with attacks against that system for however long the system has existed. I don't know if the same thing happens in math, but I would imagine that like there is, there is also truly a narrative aspect to it in that you want to understand how people's thinking about the issue has evolved over time and not just what the results were, right?
1: One thing I've always wanted to do, I've never had the courage to do, is to give a one-slide talk with a picture on it. Um, you know, and try and do, maybe not for 50 minutes, but <laughs> maybe like a half an hour talk. Because you really can, you know, with one picture, just a couple ideas, you can really elaborate a lot. And like you said, with a timeline, a chronological timeline, that could be extremely effective, right? It may be, as opposed to just like a bunch of bullet points. You have something visual that describes it. And um, yeah, I like think if you're describing like, you know, history, history since like, you know, antiquity or something, and you're going through different time periods, that can be really, really effective and useful.
3: I can actually give an example of something similar. Uh, when I was a senior, I studied chemistry. When I was a senior, I was taking a nuclear magnetic resonance class and my professor would teach classes where it would be three weeks worth of material from one data file. And he would just open up Mestranova and start analyzing the data with us. And he would walk us through the whole process of figuring out what signal corresponds to what atom and what angle. And so, we never really had the organization of slides or anything like that, but we could see his mental organization of how he approached the problem. And that was really great.
1: Yeah, I love that idea. I mean, some students, of course, in like feedback will say, well, I want like organized lectures, but others will say like, yeah, like you're saying it's, it's perfect. And I mean, I like to do a little bit of both in my lectures and my teaching, I'll have sort of an organized part, but then I'll solve problems real time and they get to see how I, how I think. I think Jared has a question.
4: Yeah, I I just thought of of something else that's that I've thought about a lot when I've done presentations and when I watch other people's presentations. I, I was I thought about this quite a bit when I I, I was also at, at JMM um, and I I was attending some um, philosophy talks and and boy, a lot of the folks there were keen on just filling their their slides with just. So many words. and it's not even big equations because it was more philosophical. It was more abstract. but they would just have like entire paragraphs up there. and and one thing that I wanted to focus on is um the notion of of like incremental information reveal on slides. Hmm. Um, I personally uh, always do this, and I haven't decided if it's like a Always a good idea or not, but I almost always will incrementally reveal the information on the slides so that it's getting, it's being presented visually as I'm explaining it bit by bit. Um, I I I feel like the majority of presentations that I see do not do this, where mm-hmm. on a given slide all the information that's going to be on the slide or most of it is on there to begin with, and it's sort of. I, I think the trade-off is like if you do that, it gives the audience sort of the opportunity to absorb what they're seeing as you're talking instead of having to keep up with you. The downside is they won't, they might not listen to you because they'll just be looking at the slide on their own. And I'm i am wondering again, like what you what your thoughts are on that trade-off between letting the audience go at their own pace versus them not listening because they're going at their own pace.
1: Yeah, I tend to be more in your camp. I tend to reveal things. Um, I use animations in my Microsoft Word. And when I'm doing Notability, I'll scroll through. There's another side to it. And you can think about this. I don't have a definitive answer for it. I don't think there is a definitive answer, really. You know, sometimes people are not with you. We think as speakers that everyone is following every word we're saying, uh, absorbing every idea. But maybe they're not with you. Maybe they missed the previous points. And what I tend to do, I'm I'm not really quite a speed reader, but I do tend to look at a slide in its totality and absorb various things. If you had everything at once, there are people in the audience who could just select and pull things out, right? So there, there are two sides to it. I don't think there really is a definitive answer, though. I think it's a matter of style. I know some people really don't like the reveal. I've heard this before. They prefer just to see a slide as it is. But what you said at the beginning, I think is really important. If you have tons of words or, you know, whatever it is, like equations or something on a slide, it's just too much to absorb, right? So uh, if you do have everything all at once, think about the nine line rule, not to have too much on any given slide.
4: Yeah, I I think I've definitely had cases where there's information that it seems like the best way to present it is on one slide, but it's a lot for one slide so this the compromise I found is reveal it all at once so even though by the time you're done revealing the slide there's a lot of info you've been revealing it one bit at a time so you can at least it, it feels like you're exploring it rather than just it being shoved right in your face. Uh,
1: I'll tell you a, so a story that, that's what I, I remember talking. at a conference I was at I think it was in Slovenia and the power went out in the hotel. And there was a a window, so there was light coming in, so we could sort of interact with the speaker, but it was a hotel without whiteboards and blackboards. So for 20 minutes, the speaker just talked about their results. It was honestly one of the better talks I've ever seen. (laughs) So it's, the point is, you know, think about what you're putting on slides. You need to put all that stuff up there. And it's, yeah, it's unfortunate. Like you said, those philosophy talks is like maybe just maybe that's a common thing in the humanities. I don't know, but it definitely can go overboard. There's just too much information. We can't read that fast.
4: Yeah. They would just have paragraphs of, of text and I'm like, and, and then essentially read it largely verbatim. And, know. you know, I'm not, I'm not knocking them because it, you know, that we're all doing our best out here. Um, but it's, it, and, and then there would be somebody who would come in and they, and they would do the, the thing where, like, oh, you just have the one slide which says, like, who you are, and they just talk, right? Mm-hmm. And and those, some of those were actually significantly more effective than the ones that had all of the information visually.
1: I know an Indigenous scholar um, in Canada, a mathematician, and he doesn't use slides. It's part of the oral tradition um, mm. that he was raised with, uh, his perspective of telling stories and so on. And that really wouldn't work, say you're, you know, you prove some new result in group theory that's very technical. Maybe it's better to have a slide or two, but it's it's always a good idea to think outside the box, like I said, and think about different ways of presenting.
4: It's also just good, like you sort of mentioned, to have a backup plan because you don't
1: know when the projector is not going to work or the power is going to go out. Yeah. Yeah, if you had or, to, give, if I had to give this talk with no slides, I probably could do it. I wouldn't be as organized, yeah. but... Right, but we'd have this. I think this kind of discussion is as effective as the talk, to be honest. Right.
2: In our field in computer science, the more dominant problem is that the obscure flavor of Linux that the presenter is using is incompatible with the uh, projector. Uh, yes, <laughs> and the, that the happens. Mandatory all the time. <laughs> first
1: five minutes of every Scarly talk yeah. where people are struggling with the presentation software or something. Right. Yes.
2: Okay, I've got a question about the equity yes. diversity inclusion stuff, um, yes. which is that we in computer science have recently been uh, evolving the vocabulary we use for a lot of things. Uh, so for instance, we now say coherence check instead of sanity check. And I think that most of that is for the good, but there's been some controversy about some of the words. One that comes to mind is Byzantine. So we use Byzantine to describe a scenario in which you have a distributed system and um uh, There may be kind of perhaps some hierarchy to the system, but the more important part is that there are some nodes in your system who misbehave from your perspective and and you don't exactly know who they are and you want the system to be tolerant to this misbehavior. and so the, the criticism of the use of the word is that it implies that like, Byzantine people are bad. And mm-hmm. the rejoinder is that there are no Byzantine people. And so there's nobody to be negatively impacted by this word. And we've been using this word for a long time. And so it's confusing to like suddenly change to a different term. And then you have uh, you know a huge body of literature that's no longer semantically tied to the new literature, et, et cetera. Um, and so I, I guess this is a hard and big question, but I wonder uh, how do you think about where to draw the line in terms of when it's worth coming up with a new piece of uh, terminology for something that's more inclusive versus when it is perhaps, I would argue, like intellectually masturbatory to do so in the case of, I mean, this is my opinion, but like in the case of Byzantine where there's nobody negatively impacted, it's hard for me to see why it matters, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe saying Cretan, for example, and a talk in Greece would not go over so well in the same context. <laughs> right. True. That's, again, our language is evolving, our cultural you know, ideas and all of this is evolving. And so we are, especially as scholars, we're aware of this. And I think it's incumbent on us to try at least to get it right. I don't think we always will. And you can be called out. I mean, this is uncomfortable. It can happen. Something you can say something in a talk and just it can slip. Right. I mean, I'm older than probably most of you. And I mean, in the old days, people used to use phraseology like that's crazy. That's insane. Or I'm feeling schizophrenic about something. Right. These are very like, you know, not like sensitive words to use right now. in, in those contexts, right, like uh, if something is going wrong, saying something is, you know, say it's bananas or something. Right. So um, one thing you can do, like I mentioned about sensitivity checks it's not a bad idea, especially if you feel uncertain about something or you're just starting something out. And also depends on the context very much. So what you're talking about, you can run this across a colleague. So I'm a gay man, I have spoken on many panels and given talks about LGBTQ plus inclusiveness in STEM and mathematics, right? I had a slide in one of my talks where I was talking about something to do with transgender, right? And someone raised a point about that and sort of contrary point. And I felt really embarrassed, but actually it was, it was a transgender person who raised the point, but I took it as a learning moment. And I, I made a point of saying that, that this is okay. Well, this is something that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm learning myself, right. We all are learning and I, I don't think any of us necessarily will have every single thing. Perfect. Even people who are experts in EDI, but, but trying that's, This is the piece, right? You know, um, there's a lot of things out there now. I know um, people talk about wokeness and all this and the negative consequences of it. But to me, it's about kindness. It's about being inclusive, being, you know, empathetic and compassionate with your audience and trying to use terms and phrases which are are not offensive.
0: I I think that's a great answer. Uh, By the way, Brennan
2: mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, go ahead.
3: Well, I have a comment about this on the consistency and literature side of things. Um, It might not even be worth worrying about that one because there's so many low-hanging fruit for what needs to be done better. I just had to do a literature review on an enzyme that has seven names. And the seven names have nothing to do with any human beings or their feelings. It's because the researchers would discover a new function of the enzyme and rename it over and over and over. And so instead of worrying about um, necessarily words that are like that, maybe we could just stop inventing new names for things that are already established. There's there's lower hanging fruit on this one, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah certainly two is not that bad. By the way, Jared, um, sort of. Jared asked, has the CS world agreed on a new terminology for master-slave? So in, in the context of Git now, um, master is no longer used by GitHub, right? Main is. And I think that most people are using main now. Um, but ACM has a list of alternative terms for terms that are uh, you know, considered insensitive, right? And so you can refer to the ACM style guide. And, and I think that most of the ACM terms are pretty good. There's a some that are like, very long that I don't really like because you replace a short, concise description with something very verbose. Um, yeah, but like primary, secondary, as Daniel says, is quite good, right? So there's definitely
0: alternatives. So
3: how's everybody doing? We're, we're
0: past
1: an academic hour now, right? So it's almost <laughs> the full 60 minutes, everybody okay? It's long zoom fatigue is real right but um this is a good interactive discussion i'm enjoying it so oh,
0: there's a comment
2: so jared says i went to a great talk at popple on how to not give a good presentation from this interesting guy leonidas Lamprop." Pulo? I think I said that roughly correctly. In the talk, you trashed on Beamer saying that it's an excellent way to lose your audience's attention. How do you keep an audience's attention in a technical talk? Any tips?
1: I think of this when I teach, right? So if I'm doing something very technical in a lecture, I'll stop. I'll maybe ask a question. I'll maybe do an example. And you can do the same thing in a technical talk, right? You don't necessarily have to just launch through all the details. It's fine to do that, but maybe take a breather every once in a while. That's my suggestion.
2: Well, Anthony, we've taken a solid hour of your time. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I think other people enjoyed it too. Um, I'm going to post the recording online unless you post-talk decide you don't want it there, in which case I won't. Um, And um, yeah, thank you again. This was fantastic. We really appreciate you.
1: And thanks for the cold invite. I know probably <laughs> you're not as familiar with me as a scholar and maybe mm. a little bit of a leap of faith inviting me for a talk like this, but it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it and uh, made me think a little bit myself about how to give good talks. So. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much. Adios.
0: All right. Take care, everybody.